Hello, and welcome back to the Deer Apparition Podcast. My name is Hunter, and with me, as always, are Rue and Steve. Guys, how you doing? Doing great. I am very doing good. Doing great, doing great. I, I'm doing better than Rue. Oh, it's a competition now. I feel like we should just keep bumping each other down. I wouldn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm so we're, cozy. We're excited to be back here after a little break. Uh, we had some scheduling conflicts, but we are, we are primed and ready to go. If you didn't catch our last episode, we did a full breakdown of uh, Act 1, Lake South River North. Uh, you can go check that out on all the, the relevant places. Uh, or you can follow us on Facebook at uh, Deer Apparition Podcast. Uh, we also have an Instagram and everything like that. So just go find us places. We will, we will be there for you. Uh, we're excited to have with us today uh, Gavin Castleton. Um, he is the most recent addition to the band. Uh, he plays keys and lends vocals to Act 5. And he's also been in, in so many projects, it, it's hard to count. There's ch- Chances are, if you've listened to an album, he has been in it somehow. So, uh, <laughs> Gavin, we're excited to have you here. How are you doing today? Ah, oh, yes, the clipping, oh, shit. Did book the Rick beautiful clipping. clipping. I totally forgot the... <laughs> That's a freebie, but if you ask me to do that again, it's going to cost you. I mean, I, I've our, got Our budget scratch. is very limited, so... <laughs> yes, thank you for that introduction. You know, I don't actually think I'm... I don't think it's accurate. I don't think I am the Kevin Bacon of rap and rock and roll. I feel like there's, there's only... <laughs> there's actually... Quite a limited number of projects I've been involved in. Two, well, three thousand, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, a, a little bit of hyperbole on my part, just because when I was doing some re- research for the show, I just, I just kept finding new things, like uh, featuring Gavin Castleton. Gavin Castleton performed with these people, and then even some things that you were featured on didn't appear online. Like I know you were on um, the Archaeologist EP called Odyssey, great EP that you, I think you lent the keys to. Yes. Uh, so there's just a ton of stuff that you're, you're on. It's kind of hard to, uh, to find it all. So it, it definitely seems like you've been in pretty much everything. I'm just old. I think, <laughs> I think that just confirms my age. <laughs> no, I get but it. Yeah. I've been, I've, I've been playing music for a long time. I think since 90, my first shows were in 1995 to give you a rough idea. And my first recordings were probably 1992. But the, when I say recordings, I mean me and my friend with a tape recorder in a basement playing horrible duets on piano and like drums held together with duct tape kind of thing. Yeah. How how did the, the whole music thing start for you? Because like, like I said, uh, you've been in so many things. And for those who aren't familiar with Gavin's work, um, he's he's dabbled in a lot of genres, progressive rock. You know, currently he's in the Deer Hunter course and he's, he's done rap. He's done uh spoken word kind of poetry stuff i mean he, he just he dips his toes in everything so how how exactly did you get started in yeah what was your initial foray into music i think my first foray into music was my mom started on me on piano lessons when i was maybe three it was really young but um and be, and i think it was only because i had my fingers were too fat to play violin and so they put me on piano and um, kept my attention with Suzuki lessons, which are uh, sort of an ear training. And so I was trained classically until I was 14 or something. Um, a lot of that with Suzuki method, which is just a fancy way of saying I'm more of an ear person than a sight reading person. But in, in general, I was playing classical music. Um, I have vague memories of learning Michael Jackson's songs and stuff like that at a young age, but not. Um, but mainly classically until I really just hated the piano at the age of 14 or so when all teenagers hate anything prescribed to them. (laughs) And I started doing, um, my, my mom did a very smart thing and they got me a jazz teacher. And so then I started training as a jazz pianist and I don't think I got super far with it, but 
maybe one of the most important things my teacher introduced me to at that time was Stevie Wonder and Herbie Hancock and artists mm. like that, that I had thought were really <clears throat> cheesy because I was only aware of, I just called to say I love you and things like that. And then um, because, and that kind of got me into funk and then funk brought me to hip hop and then, um, and somewhere in there I heard Mr. Bungle and that changed my life. Oh quite my a bit God, Mr. Bungle. They just, yeah, Mr. Bungle is my favorite band. Is still my favorite band and was my favorite band from the age of maybe 14 or 15 and then but it, important you know most importantly they just made me realize that you can do whatever you want and it just you just shouldn't be sticking to a genre necessarily and and anyway and then I was in a band called Groove of Small um from 1995 to say 2004 or 5 and that was a big college experience of just evolving as musicians from being sort of a a weird um shooties groove 311-ish kind of sounding band to a much more bizarre um i don't know what kind of band hopefully indescribable but you know somewhere in there we are learning uh king crimson and mahavishnu and all these prog bands but we're also listening to you know it's just uh, six boys growing up listening to as wide a berth as they can figure out in Cranston, Rhode Island, um, culturally figure out all the different genres that they can f- take an interest in and trying to incorporate it into this music. And um, and then it was after that, in 2004, I started doing solo work. That band was um, really struggling to stay together, and I started recording my own stuff. And it, most importantly, that's when software had reached a point of being both most affordable and most um, uh, accessible um, that I was able to start producing electronic music and exploring ideas on my own. And so I started doing that, and then I started touring on my own at that point. But I also was playing in some other bands. Um, One Drop was a band, a drum and bass hip-hop group from Florida that I toured with for a couple, for I think a couple years and released some um, split EP and albums with, and then Ibu Gogo was sort of half of Groove Small, three guys from that, us playing sort of ballistic adventure rock music, closer to maybe uh, more inspired by 80s horror movies and 80s, um, you know, teen movies and stuff like that, Danny Elfman-ish kind of things, but with a aggressive yes <laughs> and can, uh, yes and... I guess, well, yes, and I'm trying to think. Some sick JoJo music. Go- yeah, I would say it sounds something between yes and Goblin to me, but like a little cartoony because there's like a lot of Nintendo 8-bit influence in it. And then after that, I think I played in a group that would jam, um, like Moroccan jam band in Boston for a little bit, and I... I toured with Facing New York, um, a, a really awesome band from the Bay Area, for a little bit as their keyboardist or their opening act, or sometimes both. And then, um, uh, yeah, and then I just a couple. Mostly, it's been because of my level of success, which is level <laughs> one. <laughs> it's it's always been um, it's always been a lot of those collaborations are with friends that are sort of around the same level as me and we will put together a tour together and play music together and and make bands and make bands for that tour together. We call them family bands usually and um they kind of like Future Castle you did with uh, Rare Future. Exactly. That's a great example and I did one with Lex Land called the Gav the Casland Family Band that we did for a tour and that was all guys from um 
Rare Futures and from AKA Happy Body Slow Brain at the time. Um, we would all just, because we all loved each other's music and so we could get together and do these tours that were just a little bit more affordable um, with everyone joining in and helping each other's band. So th- those are really, really fun experiences. I don't know. The Future Castle EP is the only recording from that kind of band, but um, but that would be re- more recent collaborations. And then the Deer Hunter starts somewhere in there, me joining the Deer Hunter and doing that. And then I think post that, there aren't uh, as many collaborations. Well, you did uh, Future Castle, which is incredible. Yeah, that was the last one. That's the most recent one I did post joining Deer Hunter, where I go out and I do a tour with someone else. Um, well, I, yeah. As you know, we 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 threw out some questions to the. Our- Wait, just right before we do that. Right before we do that, I just want to circle back around to something. Uh, you said you started out in Rhode Island, right? Yes. So very much. I find it really interesting because a lot of the band members from the Deer Hunter like originated out of Rhode Island. Is that kind of how you guys got connected? You know. I, this is going to relate to a question I would guess that you would ask me, so I can just tell you this story now if you like, um, about kind yeah, of how mine and Casey's, how we know each other at all. But um, there's, so a little bit, yes, Nick Salicito is from Rhode Island, and I believe used to come to Groove of Smalt shows, and he had a band in Rhode Island, Board with Four, and another band he was in before that with a friend of ours that's um, in, a, in another band now, and... Um, I think, uh, so Nick, I've always been aware of, I don't think we were necessarily close friends at the time, but he's always been incredibly supportive. Nick Salicito, Nick Crescenza lives in Rhode Island too, but I don't think we really ran in as close as circles, but Nick, I was more aware of, we have friends of friends and I think he would come to Groover Small shows and, um, so Nick, I've known maybe the longest Nick Salicito, um, but the the funniest, weirdest thing about Casey's and mine relationship in general is that we both lived in Lincoln, Rhode Island, but like one year apart. And if you know anything about Rhode Island, which I hope you don't, <laughs> it's like one little um, weird town on the outskirts. Like it's it's not. It would make sense if we both lived in Providence, um, and I lived in Providence for many years, but. Um, but we've just also both happened to live in this one outskirt town in Rhode Island, but about a year apart. And I don't know, I don't fully know Casey's side of this story, though I think it's similar. The guy, uh, there's this incredible photographer, artist, and drummer named Justin Muir, who's uh, a long-term friend of mine and who was in a band called Monty R.I., back in the day they would play with trios all the time and when i was maybe this is 2004 2005 um i think casey was just starting to do the deer hunter and justin muir was always a wonderful supporter of my music and would help me sometimes with graphic design he most um importantly did the artwork for home for me for my album home and he just this incredible um ability of photography and photoshop skills and he and just way better taste than me (laughs) uh, graphically so he he was working on that for me at the time and he also made some of my earliest looping videos he filmed and edited them for me just to help me which is such an incredible thing he's just one of the sweetest people and he um but he's also this huge fan of casey's and the deer hunter and back then i was very um 
just buried in exploring my first solo music and what I wanted to do and this new palette of um, these programs that I could actually use soft synths and this kind of thing. So it was really exciting. At the exact same time, Casey was doing the exact same thing with the exact same programs. And and so we're both kind of, in a way, getting free from um, working with other people and getting to do our own thing. And Justin, to his credit, tried over and over again to get me to talk to Casey and listen to The Deer Hunter. He was like, I think you'd really like it. I think it's a lot like what you do. I think you'd be really interested. And he was working on the artwork, the early artwork for The Deer Hunter stuff. Maybe the first... Which album was this around? I want to say, I don't really know, but I think it might have been... I feel like it was actually an EP or something, or he was working on the first website. I just remember it had a tree image, and he was maybe animating. So he was like working on it, and he kind of showed me quick. But all that is to say that my my self centeredness at that time and my focus on what I was doing made made it so that I never reached out or really checked it out. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> like I just didn't I didn't take him seriously enough. So there's this funny thing to me in Casey's and mine's friendship and our history and just our collaborative history that we could have met like 10 years ago. It's each of us had either of us had listened to Justin Muir and reached out, but I believe I mean I don't I I think it was really important that we were so buried in what we were doing so it's fine but we're we find that we're we had such a kinship in where we were at in our process and our and he's absolutely right we were sort of on different coins of making orchestral music and and expanding our palettes he casey was leaning more rock and i was leaning more um r&b and electronica kind of stuff but but the fact is that we were both in the same creative headspace, and we knew this one guy that was trying to get us to talk to each other, um, or at least just be aware of each other's music, and I just didn't make the effort that I should have. So I kind of missed out on it until years and years later when um, Matt Fazzi was playing a tour for the Deer Hunter. He's one of the guys in the Rare Futures, and one of my uh, long-term friends and collaborators and he so I came out to see them in Portland and I got to meet some of the other guys in the band I think I met Nick Crescenzo in that moment and I hung out with Nick Salacido and Fazzy and I didn't even meet Casey at that moment but um, but that was my first real awareness of the deer hunter a- outside of that I was sort of in a whole different circle of music and wasn't really paying attention to what Casey was doing. So I we just have this funny backstory of almost meeting in Rhode Island. Um, Do you think that kind of uh, that kind of disconnection you had from like uh, the scene that the deer hunter was kind of operating in? Do you think that kind of allowed you to come in with a fresh perspective that kind of uh, lended some some good stuff to them? Because I imagine this was around the time Act Four and Act Five were being recorded. Because that's the first thing you were on. So do you no. think the fact that you weren't necessarily oh. involved kind of allowed you to bring in some fresh ideas? Um, no, no. So well. You, so you're not saying that when when that was all going down, we're talking 2004, so it's not even near Act 4 or 5 yet, but you mean later when we when I finally met and then joined? I guess I jumped forward a little bit, yeah, because I know the first thing you uh, did with them, at least officially so, was uh, kind of smack in between Act 4 and Act 5, and they were recording that. No, yeah, so truth be told that my participation in Act 5 was really peripheral, and it was really at the end of the process. Casey was actually just, they had already tracked everything, written everything, and Casey was at the tail end, and he graciously um, 
try to involve me by saying, hey, can you put this down on this, and can you help me do this, and can you throw down this vocal here? And I did go up there and record the, and write and record the Have Have Nots with him, but the all the instrumental for it was already done. So I would say, uh, and I did a, I think I did a solo in... Um, Mr. Usher. Mr. Usher, and then I mm-hmm. did a, um, maybe some things in The Flame Is Gone, I think. Is that, is, am I right about that? I think I... I I, added I don't have the credits sound. memorized, but I know those two in particular. Yeah, I think I did some sound design on that and some vocals on the thing and then that. And I think it's really those three little tidbits that I contributed. I wouldn't say at all that um, I influenced that record, I don't think. I mean, I don't I don't know if Casey would, but I don't feel like I really did. I just feel like I got to jump on the last minute of it. And um, I mean, a funny little anecdote about that is to, to show you how still unaware I was uh, much about the deer hunter i don't think i i didn't even think singing on that song was really that big of a deal until people came up to me like you're the guy that sang on that song i was like oh yeah okay like i didn't i guess i don't think i really knew that there hadn't been very many vocal contributions from other people that really people were casey was doing the majority of them so having a guest on a deer hunter song was actually a bigger deal than i than i was aware you know um so that was kind of a funny thing i think if i was um I would have probably been more nervous or or more methodical about going about it. it. As it turned out, that was just mine and Casey's first experience writing together like that, and we just cranked it out and we did it, and we were, you know, and it came out how it did, and we were really happy about it, and it was fun. Um, but I didn't realize the weight of it until after the record was out, and um, I think maybe because, and this will touch on another question you might ask, but my first tour was Europe, and so. Um, and one with a band or like little, ever, yeah. Well, ironically, that was also my first European tour. I'd been to Europe myself, just backpacking as a teenager, but I hadn't ever played shows in Europe. And of course, I'd always wanted to. And my very first thing I did with the Deer Hunter, aside from going up and hanging out with Casey and recording a couple little things together, um, I was to go on this European tour. And a funny anecdote of that was I I can kind of remember multiple times on that tour uh, members of the band going it's not usually like this like assuring me this is not a normal show because they felt like they were uh, like smaller you know i think there were i think the biggest show might have been 300 people and the smallest one might have been 50 or 100 and they were really um I, I, it's just really funny to me because to me that was a miracle. I was like, two hundred people in a in a place where you guys had played one time before. I think they'd only <laughs> been there once before, and I was like, this is amazing. Like to have two hundred people come out to see you when you're so far from home. And da, da, da. but we had done no American tour, so I didn't have a good. Um, proxy to compare it to. Um, so I think they were thinking I would think, you know oh, this isn't really that big of a deal. I kind of thought you guys were more successful or something. And I was thinking, this is insanely successful. <laughs> Again, maybe just, just relating to me, be a, uh, you know, my career success staying at this sort of level one. But like, um, there was a disconnect there where they perceived it very differently than I did. And I was just incredibly grateful to be in uh, England at all because I'd never actually been to England. And I'd only been to Scotland. And to get to see these this other culture and these other towns and play for these kids with these beautiful accents was like a whole new thing for me. Um, so I think that I think right after that might have been the tracking of Act 5 stuff. Point is, I, all that is to say that I... I 
that may have contributed to me not realizing the seriousness of contributing to that record at the time. I mean, I, I knew it was a big deal to to help him be on a record, but I don't think I understood that singing on that song was gonna was gonna be as big of a deal to fans. You know, I mean, it's definitely a highlight of the record, just in kind of the the tonal shift and and uh, as far as narratively how it works into the story, it's it's the the most kind of like musical song of of the acts, and really kind of lays out that there's a story happening here and unfolding in front of you. So I think just, you know, especially being on that track, I think it's just one of the ones that really stands out to people. Yeah, that's cool. I, I think it's either a high or a low point for people. It's If they can roll with Disney, it's the high point. <laughs> if they can't, it might be the low point. But um, I to me, it, it's only critical that it's a, it's a different color on the record. And I love the colors on that record and the colors on the act four records are so wide and diverse. I think that is the accomplishment to me. I think another funny thing is that I wrote that with him, not knowing the context in the storyline of it. He explained to me act, uh, uh, Usher's motivations and, and Hunter's motivations. And we talked through kind of what we're saying in the song, but I didn't know where it stood in that album. I didn't really know m- many of the other songs. A lot of anything I'd heard to that point was pretty much instrumental, I think. So, um, so story-wise, I didn't really know where it fit in or that it would, that you, what you're telling me is actually a revelation to me. If you say it's a pivotal moment in the record, story-wise, I didn't know that at the moment that we did it. Um, I just knew these are motivations. Let's come up with these lyrics and try to tell the story. And it was a very collaborative moment for me and Casey, I think. Did you come up with the lyrics for those parts or was it more so uh, Casey gave it to you? No, I, we wrote them together. Okay. It was very, very collaborative. Um, maybe even phrase by phrase. I think, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was really, all I remember is that it was really fast. I think, um, I, I think not 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 like super fast but just kind of frictionless like we I I can't when something goes so frictionless I don't even remember the process like I don't remember coming up with the melody it just came to us and we ran with it and then I don't know if it was he or I one of us probably came up with the melody and the other one came up with the next part and the lyrics I remember being really collaborative and saying oh here's another way we could say that and so I feel like I think I think Casey would agree his memory might be better than mine on that but I think he I think he'd probably agree that we both um that we shared in the writing and the and the melody of that I think I think I can't because he wrote the instrumental of it. It seems plausible to me too that maybe he might have had that melody or at least the beginnings of it already figured out and sung it because he usually does. Um, but I just can't remember. But um, but yeah, lyrically, I think I contributed a bit to it, um, and it was just really back and forth in a, in a really fun way. I, th- I think I think uh, the the way you kind of fit into the Deer Hunter is really interesting in, in the respect that when I, I look at your your solo music and things like that you have these very interesting concepts for the way you approach albums. Like I know Graceland is one that really stands out as far as, I mean, just the idea for it is very kind of creative and it's, it's interesting to listen to. I mean, you're not going to, you know, bump it in your car, but you you sit there and you listen to it. You try to figure out what's going on. What's this guy talking about? Listen to the music behind it. So what's the story behind that one? Graceland is sort of an anomaly in my catalog because I collaborated with his close friend, a playwright and comic writer, um, Cyrus Letty, and he wrote uh, these long uh, stories for each song, or like scripts, I guess. And I kind of converted them into slightly more rhythmic um, phrasings and stuff like that. And we recorded all the um, 
sound design together. We went all over Rhode Island recording um, these um, areas that that story takes place in. The story was his idea. Um, we might have collaborated a little bit on some of the funnier parts of it, but in general, he wrote it. And it's about a guy that works, uh, maybe, a, I think he's 30 or 35, and he works at Staples. His name is Gary Tavoli, and he um, he's just sort of this uh, awkward guy he he's he's just this awkward guy that who lacks self-awareness and um i think it was heavily influenced at the time the british office was coming to america and we were really stoked on it and uh, also the streets had put out this the grand don't come for free also a uk production that were um both highly influential i remember like being stoked on those things at that at that time and and being very amused and impressed by them and um so anyway, it's a story of this guy who's not very self-aware. He works at Staples. He sort of has a girlfriend, but he's not really sure about that. And eventually he goes to a wedding and he gets accused of sort of dancing with kids in an inappropriate way. And then he tries to get revenge. And it's this whole thing sort of about struggling to become an adult. And um, But it's also just supposed to be funny. And, uh, and also, I think Cyrus just wanted to try to make me say some phrases and words that uh are so cringeworthy <laughs> that my family would be turned off and so he i also had to stick to the script that he wrote um religiously but um, yeah i think it was uh was it rooster and the matador i think that that yeah that's the that's the dance moment there's some iconic moments on it that are really funny to me i, I remember somebody saying it was the best record to listen to when they were driving late at night trying to stay awake because it's almost it's almost a radio player, like a podcast, but there are, I did all the music for it and stuff, um, but it's not rap and it's not spoken word and it's, it's just a very bizarre type of media or type of, you know, it's a little genreless to me um, in a way that I'm proud of. I think that's really cool, but it's a standout in that I'd, I'd call it mainly a depressive comedy and I don't think my other records are like that. Um, but it's narrative, m- much like most of my other records. It's narrative. In yeah, that sense. and uh, we we got quite a few questions about uh, some of your other records. I mean, the the stories are so kind of interesting and dense on their own that I bet we could just have an, an episode on each each album in particular. <laughs> uh, but I, I think a lot of people want to hear about Home. I mean, the the story's kind of interesting that it's it's a breakup album of sorts, but it's also got some zombie apocalypse adventures in there. Yeah, totally. Um, that's a really pivotal record in my solo career. It was the first time I signed a label deal as a solo artist and it was the first time i had a budget more than 300 dollars, probably so i was able to pay for uh you know the the piecings of an orchestra and um and a woodwind section or whatever you know i was able to kind of expand my palette a little bit and not just rely on the horrible sound banks and things that we had at the time um sorry there's a jet going over my house right now I'll oh, wait. that's okay. They're, they're, they're featured in the episode now, so. <laughs> so um, that's just to match your train. I'm competing. Uh, I think um, Home was really Home was a 2009 release I did, and uh, the story of it was that I had been breaking up with this person for a year, and um, somewhere in there I thought I would process it by way of making this record, and I also thought it would be healthy to ask her to collaborate on it and write some of the lyrics of the female lead part. And it was basically this story of us 
um, devolving and um, getting dismantled. And the zombies, besides that I was just and have always been a huge fan of zombie movies and zombie culture, the zombies were, um, they are just a metaphor for the slow plotting, um, um, toxic, like the cancers that take down a relationship, the things that don't get healed, and that just, the whole idea of true George Romero zombie culture is that zombies, that they're slow and that they just don't stop, and it's more about impending doom than it is this new age fast zombie thing where it's immediate terror. He would argue that that's, you might as well do Wolfman or Dracula if you want fast death. The zombies are more about what happens to uh, society and to interrelations when they have this impending outside pressure that's going to destroy them. So the zombies are that in that record. It's more about, like it's a metaphor of the things that are going to take you down. And, and oftentimes in a breakup, especially true of that one, the toxins are clear maybe even a year or two into it, maybe a couple years if you're lucky. And if you don't know how to fix them or heal them, they are just slowly building and usually manifest in, you know, big um, ex- or passive aggressive comments and then explosive arguments that seem to be recurring, that kind of thing. So, so the two of you were able to sit down together and basically say this is the an, an anthem of uh, the, the end of our relationship. Yeah, in that's a sense. like, like how, how did that, that process That's really work weird because I want to cycle back around to that. Okay, so you were saying that you were working with uh, the girl in the relationship. Was this like after you guys broke up, or is it like, or you basically sat her down saying, "Hey, our relationship's going to shit. Let's work on this song, this album." Um, no, so the way that relationship worked is we broke up, and then I think we had at least a year, maybe a year and a half of what I usually refer to as gray area, which is like you're not completely broken up. You can't leave each other alone in a way or you're still sleeping together or you're still, you know, occasionally relapsing or whatever. Like, it's this inability to actually disconnect. Um, Hopefully because you just love each other too much and not completely because you're just terrified to be alone. And so, this album started in that gray zone. We had technically said we're broken up, but we weren't really over. And it was taking a long time, which the gray zone is much more brutal than the fast breakup. It can be um, better for a little bit, for sure, but it's also brutal. And because somewhere in there, someone's going to see a photo of the other person with somebody else, or they're going to run into him on the street and it's going to feel disgusting. So it was in the gray zone that um, I started working on the record. And then I said, would you be willing to write some lyrics from your perspective? I want to tell the history of our relationship. And she graciously agreed to do it. And those were pretty good experiences because we hadn't really been able to collaborate. And she's a really talented writer. And she, um, so it's really, what happens is the first four or five songs of the album, she's helping me write and we're telling our history and that's a little easier to to write. I was just also really wanting to get Mm -hmm. her perspective on her side of our history because I think I had been really um, deaf to any comments she wanted to make about our relationship until that point and I was trying to learn and get better at that. And so she wrote the lyrics maybe to the first four or five songs, I think, and then things really fell apart and um, we weren't able to maintain a really, uh, you know, positive interaction with each other. And I think that's about when the zombies get introduced in the album and then they get introduced and they, and 
everything falls apart and in the album we run off and from there it's me writing the rest of it um so it's it's a little bit in real time the way the album plays out we're we're writing it together and then we can't make it work um it just you know and it's it's abysmal and really depressing too to get into the later songs on the record together would have been probably really painful <laughs> and i was trying to stay alive at the time and it, it was i was in a very 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 depressed state so um so i it's probably good that the collaboration ended about halfway through the record and then i finished it and then at the very end there's this wall breaking fourth wall breaking thing where i say this album isn't really about any of this this album is about the actual process i use to get through the breakup which is the making of the album so the um it's not you know it's not actually really a story of zombies per se you know like there's this meta narrative of like mm. it's yeah, the absolutely. alchemy of making something beautiful out of something horrible that matters that you need to take from this as a listener because that i want you to walk away and during your breakup do exactly that instead of um you know and then there's this delusional aspect it veers off the rails towards the end and gets really fantasy like where they end up on an island and all this stuff and that's where the it breaks and it says this isn't none of this is true this is ridiculous that didn't happen we didn't end up together we're not on an island it's a nightmare and we're going to grow and move on and blah 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 um, but the important thing is that i made something from it that i didn't i learned something not enough but i learned <laughs> you know that's the moral of that one and it's the first out al- it's also well no actually bullet lever key is the first album I was just talking to Casey about this the other day, that the, that album and Home are my first examples of designing music for other people. Up until then, everything I did was entirely self-focused and, and for my own gratification, and I didn't think about the user experience at all. And then those records, I thought, with Bullet Lever Key, I thought, I want people to pursue what they really want to do. I don't want them to give up. And I wanted artists to do that. All my friends were quitting what they loved. And so I wanted to make a record that affirmed, basically through a a reverse chronological tragedy that affirmed this is what you should do with your life. Follow what your gut tells you. And with Home, it was, if you're dealing with heartbreak, this is a healthy way to deal with it. Make something from it. Um, Make sure you grow from it, you know? So those were two albums where suddenly I was outward facing instead of inwards. Um, So they, they, they... they detail a, a, a pivotal moment in how I went about writing music. And then ever after, I was paying a bit more attention into who I was talking to and what I wanted them to take from it. Hmm. Well, when you have this divide between like making music for others versus making music for yourself, uh, I, I know uh, Clayton McCurdy over in the, the, the questions thread that we were running, he, he wanted to know what the most meaningful work is you've done. Do you find it's more gratifying or meaningful to you to kind of step outside yourself and make music for others or to be more introspective and kind of uh, make music that's going to be cathartic for you in a way? Um, so I think, I think if we talk about what, what meaningful work for me, if we're just talking about music, I, I think for me personally, meaningful work is a whole, would be a whole different thing. I wouldn't even talk about my music. I'd be talking about um, these pivotal experiences I had in my life that turned me. But if we talk about music, I think that m- meaningful I th- I think that those are 
they're not mutually exclusive. I think that the the most ther- the most therapeutic you can thing you can do for yourself, the most self, the most gratifying is actually the service of making it for someone else. So I think that the early works while focused on me and being really cathartic like you said the process of making it um in a way, they were more cathartic because of autonomy and because of me having to, getting to make exactly what I wanted to make. And when you're in a band, you never really make the exact music you want to hear. Groove of Small was a great example where we made really creative music, but I think if someone asked me, would you go and buy that music, I don't know that I actually would have. I think it was such an amalgamation and such a um, compromise on everybody's part that it ended up being this... Um, creative beige that wasn't quite my colors and so my early selfish work was definitely me getting to say i'm making exactly what i want and this is what i would want to hear but they weren't it's a totally different fulfillment it's a creative fulfillment but it's not a spiritual fulfillment the way that creating work that helps other people feels like spiritual fulfillment so i feel way better but but i guess what i mean by it being two sides of the same coin is that it's it, it, serving other people in that regard really serves yourself because you just feel amazing. So when I hear somebody email me that this album helped them get through a breakup or made them stay the course of their creative thing or whatever it is, I feel way better about that work than when I talk to myself about that time I made that record and I finally got to make a weird beat that no one else would have let me do or something like that. Like I think those that kind of feedback is feels like the biggest accomplishment in the world creatively to me if it did most importantly if it did what it was designed to do so if somebody wrote me and said you know i just love that album home because um it just made me really love zombie movies i'd be like okay well Mm. that's (laughs) cool but what i want i want to hear is that you you know process your breakup in a in a healthy and creative manner or at least you looked at it you didn't run from it in this way do you um, find that the songs that connect to people the most are unexpected? Like, you wouldn't expect the ones that they say are really meaningful to them are the ones that have the, that kind of effect on them? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think, I think there are kind of like what I would jokingly refer to as the hits, where they'll, a lot of people will gear towards certain songs on a record, like Coffee Locks or something. And it's not always because that's what resonates with them. Um, I do have one kind of funny story. I remember back in 2005 or something playing the show and somebody coming up and saying, you know, this album off your album, or this song off your album, Dark Age, just really speaks to me. And I just thought it was hilarious because it was the most subjective song you could ever hear. It was about this ex, and I was saying, when you did this, and then I said this, and then you did this, and you lived here, and I lived there, and then I did this. Like It was so specific and subjective, you know, ridiculously subjective, that I couldn't figure out how this person could relate to it. But I think it was because it was about the frustration of the rhythm of this relationship that we couldn't get this we these two people couldn't get together when they liked each other that this person was relating to but at the time i remember just going okay like i i definitely didn't write that for anybody else and i definitely don't understand how you can relate to it but i think the emotional songs in general it doesn't surprise i don't get that surprised by it i think in general people like they it's usually the same ones and stuff like that and and they don't and it's um, it's usually, 
it's usually about vulnerability. Uh, nine times out of ten, what they're relating to is that they feel like they know me because of the vulnerability. Vulnerability is the most lucrative <laughs> skill you can do in music, in my opinion, because we're so starved for it. So inevitably, it's the one where I say my darkest fear or my darkest secret or I expose the, the flaws. That's where people are going to relate the closest. And so I try to do that as much as I can. I think that's, I think that's, and I, I think it's easy to do when you are my age. <laughs> I think you just stop caring what people, um, about being that naked. You know? Yeah, no, I had that kind of stage too when I was kind of like, when I was 16, actually, I, I kind of reached that point and I feel that it made me more diverse and open to stuff than it would have beforehand when you just kind of say that I don't care anymore, you know? Yeah, that's great. That I mean, that's amazing. If you reach it at that age, it took me so long. That's wonderful. I, I think the earlier you can get there, the better. Have you found uh, kind of throughout your, your musical life, just being interested in music and interested in playing and listening to it, was there an artist for you that kind of resonated in the way that you were talking about that you, you would like to with other people? Like, was there a particular artist or song or album that you listened to early on and it really just kind of helped you through something or really inspired you in the way that you want to make music that affects others in some significant way? Yeah, you know, that's that's a really easy question to answer for me because I think it's Bjork. I think Bjork mm. was just sort oh, of... God, I love Bjork. Taught, she taught me, like... <laughs> I was, Finally, someone else. I was just a massive Bjork fan growing up. Um, and I think... But critically, she... I mean, she taught me all these things, these appreciations for electronic musicians. Don't trust the, the poet. You know, her, her productive production soundscape is, is really influential on me but she maybe the biggest thing would be vulnerability and and wearing your heart on your sleeve and all these emotions and really leaning into them instead of trying to generalize them and stuff so i would say her earliest her early works from debut to um uh, what's the one after homogenic i'm trying to remember now um was that post no post is after debut oh no that's that's yeah um i think um Though, now I look like the worst Bjork fan ever. Jeez. No, so do I, though. No, I, I keep wanting to say Volcana because I know it's some word like that, but no, it's um, uh, was it, Vespertine. Um, Probably Vespertine yes, is Vespertine. the last yeah. one that really, because she was dealing with her own relationship in that. I think, I mean, I think she always kind of is, but basically by being such a big fan of her, I, I leaned into my vulnerability when I started doing solo work. And those two early solo records are clearly influenced by her though I think missed the mark considerably, but there's this newfound vulnerability that until then you would not have heard from me. And it meant... Yeah, I, I didn't pick up on any uh, kind of Bjorkish influence, but now that I know that, I'm going to go back and listen to it because I'm, I'm a huge Bjork fan, but I'm the only one that I know who even cares. This is exactly... I, mean, I listen to her. This is a Bjork Casey, episode now, by the way. <laughs> Casey is also a Bjork fan, and we really relate on that fact. Um I think the ones I'm talking about are my first two records, so they're not as available online as anything else. So there's a good chance you haven't even been able to access them, um, and that's probably for your benefit. But <laughs> but they um, well, well now the internet sleuths have to start digging like that video of Casey and, and Nick for the the Beauty and the Beast thing they did. Oh yeah, yeah, true, yeah, yeah. But I w I would say the influence. It peters off after there, but mainly I'm 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 giving her credit for vulnerability and for really emotional emotionally raw content. I think she taught me that, and uh, I'm forever grateful for that. 
Well, that's that's great to hear. Like I said, I, I whenever we uh, meet up at a show, I'll probably just talk you off about Bjork now. You set yourself <laughs> up for it. You've laid right into my trap. I have every single recording of anything she's ever touched. I have it all. Every po- I mean, it's like 300 gigabytes or something crazy, like a terabyte maybe. I don't know. But I have the, the mother load of Bjork content if you ever want me to try and pass it to you. I never, I've probably listened to one half of a percent of it, but. It's all that matters. This reminds me of that uh, that that IT crowd episode where they're doing like the the don't pirate kind of warning. They're <laughs> saying like you wouldn't steal a baby. I don't know if you've seen the IT crowd, but it, it's. I have seen it that. a little bit. I don't think I've seen that episode. Well, I know something I really want to talk to you about. Um, one one of these times when we met up in Akron, um, we talked about kind of streaming services and kind of how music has has developed into like the modern age of the internet and how promotionally it's good but then kind of like distribution wise a little negative can you expand a little more on your thoughts on that because i think it's just it's a really big thing right now everyone uses but no one's really talking about it so i'd love to hear from an artist's perspective actually i also heard a study recently uh, where um where because the way spotify works is if you don't get paid unless someone listens to the first 30 seconds of your song so a lot of artists are re-engineering their music to make it like grab you like within that time frame instead of letting it build up like progressive artists I don't think that phenomena is new to streaming. I think people have been advising artists to do that since labels said, you better grab me in the first 30 seconds. Like that that whole idea of front-loading your song and front-loading all media. I mean, Casey and I were just talking about how the first Dark Crystal episode in Netflix is completely front-loaded to uh, possibly to a detriment, in my opinion. Mm. But that in general, there's this front-loading in our culture, your first episode, your first whatever has to be critical because people don't have the attention span. I would definitely agree that it's been exacerbated by streaming services and and things like that. Um, But um, I wouldn't even give artists that much credit for knowing that about those royalties because the royalties of streaming services are so convoluted, intentionally convoluted, that um, I would assume that the majority of artists... Whoa! We have a new guest. That's my mailman. <laughs> player, player two has entered the game. <laughs> That's my dog. Um, that, I, I, I think the majority of artists don't have a ton of insight into how their royalties work. I don't mean that as a slight against them. I, I think sure. it's sort of a rigged game. But... Um, but I think in general, streaming... I mean, that's a massive topic. I think streaming services are such an incredible double-edged sword mm-hmm. and um, and so wonderful in certain ways and so horrible in certain ways. And I think in, you know, if I summed up one of one criticism I would have about it is that Spotify successfully did a race to the bottom for value in music. They, they got us to the bottom as fast as possible till everything is, the value is considered mainly ambient Hmm. or, you know, like that it's music is, they've made it more peripheral by making it ubiquitous and that the, that race to the bottom, especially financially, to make sure everyone gets a free trial and then make sure the cost is so incredibly minimal. Um, I think they didn't really think through that you can't get that back. That the value, um, the devaluation is the is the mistake. They are banking on scale, like most tech companies, and thinking, yes, but if we get a million people paying half a penny, then you guys will make almost what you used to make. But what they're not thinking enough about or hadn't before they pulled the trigger really is what it means when you 
teach the entire population that the value is half a penny. And the, uh, the fallout from that, because you can't rebuild value in products, it's not, or you can't, it's very hard, especially with nothing, without scarcity or um, some sort of manufactured scarcity, it's very hard to convince consumers to value something more after you've convinced them that it's worth 0. 0.00. Zero four cents per listen or something like yeah I got zero point zero zero six something like that you, there you go yeah, yeah. I mean th- I think about how irritated I get when American Airlines wants to charge me for luggage and they didn't five years ago you know like they're asking me for something that I perceive as valueless I don't think I should pay for luggage because I never did why do I have to start now mm-hmm. it's a hard up hill battle so they're banking on scale i think their math i'm mainly talking about spotify here but i think their math is off i think um musician uh, music economists have known that from the beginning and have called it out and said this this math doesn't quite add up to what you guys think it will especially if your premium membership percentage isn't nearly as high as you think it can be um and I think they now know that. I could be wrong too. I'm not sure because I haven't, I haven't read as much about it lately. But um, I was pretty concerned about it for a while. But in general, I I just love I love the access of it. I love the instant access of it. I love being able to search things. Playlists are a good way to get new listeners, so that is kind of cool. I like that some of them have become good discovery engines. I just think time and time again they have shown us that musicians. Mm-hmm are the least important part of that puzzle to them. And I thrown thrown under the bus. Yeah, I think they made decisions on our behalf without talking to enough musicians. Mm. I think they... um, I mean, I think I said this in one old snarky Twitter post a long time ago that has since been shared and retweeted more times than anything else I ever posted. It was that if you just look at their feature roadmap, you can tell exactly where their priorities lie. They nev- To this day, I don't think I can put a link to my web store yet. I can put a link to... I have to work through these, uh, these horrible third parties that are working off Google spreadsheets um, as their way of me like requesting to get something added. I can't take stuff off easily. I'm, I'm still in an email loop right now with four different people just to have them stop charging people $20 for CDs that are available on my Bandcamp for $10 because some middleman it decided that he should make as much money off my album as I should. And so I thought, I think, just take it off entirely. If people want to find it, they can find it through me. I don't like, you know, that bureaucratic of a process taking all this money away from me so all that is to say that they they have just released an artist hub in the last year or two the the company's been around for 10 or 15 years already they just let us start adding our social links just a short while ago they just started integrating tour dates through third parties again we have to use third parties like all the features where you are are a user of it are a lot more developed and prioritized. All the features where artists get to control the experience of what they want to offer people is completely um, crooked and, and and or non-existent. And you have to work through all these other people that then get a cut because Spotify didn't want to build it out themselves or because it just, they, they banked, that they didn't feel like that was going to make them the money, so they didn't prioritize those features. To me, that says all you need to know about who they think are the most important people. Sure. And it, it almost seems like it's it's a bubble prone to burst and in a sense that as you continue to devalue entertainment to the point where um, it's it's just a an everyday cons, you know consumer 
thing. Uh, eventually, people aren't going to do the legwork to to find and support music. I mean, it, it almost seems like it's it's anti-musician in a in a way that's kind of ironic to the platform being based on musicians. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's I think that's a great way of summing up my feeling on it. Is that and I think it's interesting to not. Like, I think there's also a race to the bottom of the cost of living. Not That may be a really privileged thing to say um, where I'm at in my life, but in general that the cost of things goes down. We're at a time when we're actually having serious conversations about universal base income and things like that. It's not impossible that music and um, creative culture in general becomes some sort of public good that is subsidized in that way and that the costs of artists lives get easier so that it's just this sort of service i don't know i i could i could imagine a a world in 20 years or so where artists don't get painted anything or something or some sort of trade system but it almost doesn't matter because it doesn't cost that much to exist either (laughs) i wonder if they'll just even out you know it's only when one of those things is a lot faster than the other that you see these kind of problems similar to it's only when artists are the smallest i mean this is sort of a, a weird tangential analogy but where artists music was the first to worry about piracy because of the file size being so small whereas movies kind of rested on their laurels for a minute, assuming that this was a music industry problem, not thinking clearly enough about how big um, bandwidth was going to get. And then they had to fight it too. That in some ways, the people on the forefront of these problems might be musicians in a lot of ways. They're taking the brunt of this transition into our new economies. But you'll see, you might see that everywhere. I mean, in a way it's, it's related to automation and things like that where, you just aren't going to pay people as much for what they do for very long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're as you so guys yeah, might, check, check us out on Spotify. You know, as you guys know, we are on Spotify, and uh, I was doing <laughs> I was doing the research into getting us on there, and so I have my own solo stuff and like my band. We're all going looking to get on the streaming platforms, and as you said, you have to go through third parties. Uh, Spotify is like very limited in who it lets you who it lets upload to it. You got to be like really, really in the industry. Uh, so you got to find third parties, like if you're doing DistroKid or CD Baby or whatever. And I was incredibly shocked when I found out that I didn't have to use any third parties at all. And I was able to upload the podcast individually to every platform that we are on. This includes iTunes. This includes Spotify, the SoundCloud, everything. So like, except for Spotify. Wait, you're saying inclu- you did yeah, including Spotify? Spotify. Yeah, I think. They just canceled that feature, though. Did they? I don't. Well, actually, maybe their podcast yeah. upload is different. Because it is different. Yeah, really, it could be. Yeah, they're really yeah. leaning into that feature and they're trying to compete really hard on that. But they piloted an artist thing where you could upload your own, but then they canceled it. So for yeah, they canceled. It was only like a month, I think they did it. I think it was three to six months. They were testing it out to see if they liked it, and it sounds yeah, like they did. Yeah, there's this big battle <laughs> at the moment between Spotify and. Uh, kind of record labels in terms of you know who gets what what chunk of the pie so to speak so i think that's why spotify are, are kind of pushing into podcast territory and trying to make that as intuitive and as easy as possible yeah and plus yeah and it's also the highest growth new media industry so they just 
there's a pile of money in an open field there and a bunch of people rushing to it and they've got the infrastructure to mm. land on it very quickly. So I think it was a smart move. Mm. Yeah, but podcasting but on Spotify of, is very different too because you don't need premium to listen to podcasts like you do with albums. Like with albums, you can't play individual songs unless you have premium. Podcasts, it doesn't matter. Right. You, they don't pay out for podcasts in any way, shape or form. That's one of the reasons why you need a distributor so this way they can like transfer it over to your account. But like... Also nowadays, like when you're going through the the, the uh, distributor, you got to be like, all right, who am I going to get fucked by the least? Like, do I want to yeah. do I want to make 100 percent royalties, but I have to pay yearly as well as like pay to keep my music on the platform indefinitely in case I die, or do I want to take yeah. less amount and not have to worry about that and spend 10 bucks a song to upload it? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's well, it's a trade off for sure. To tie in a bow, how, how can um, we as consumers of music uh, most support the artists that we enjoy? I mean. Obviously, I, I stream music. I, I streamed all your music just to, to prep myself for the show. So, you know, you're welcome for the point zero 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 penny. But uh, how how can is it going to shows? Is it buying merch? Is it buying physical CDs? Like, what what can we as the end user do to to help kind of increase your middle? I think your most direct um, your most the most direct thing you can ever possibly do is is through the artist website kind of thing. And for me, that's Bandcamp for Deer Hunter. We have our own Cave and Canary store. I think on, um, I think the helping people on tour is, is more timely support, which is really useful. When you're on tour, a lot of times you're bleeding money. And so sometimes just showing up and buying a t-shirt might make the difference between the band eating and not eating that night. It's not going to be true of Deer Hunter necessarily, but of a lot of acts, that would be the case. Um, so I think that's huge. And of course, there's an emotional component of that where they get to see you and realize they've made an impact, which is going to make them feel really good. Um, so I guess I would say showing up for the show is the most, um, most helpful thing you can do. Um, I do that being said, I got I gotta say Spotify, I actually make okay money through Spotify. It's the biggest paying platform for me right now. Um, I, I could say that's probably just because the other ones do much more poorly for me and my web store doesn't do very well, but I think, um, but I don't, I don't think it's compl- like, I don't get just pennies from them. I think I make okay, a little bit of money. I just know it's a lot less than I would have made if they didn't exist. And I think it, the, you have to weigh that as an artist against discoveries. I need to look at how many new listeners I'm actually getting from them to, that's the whole Pandora, um, model of just like how about we pay you pretty much nothing but we'll make mm-hmm. you a bunch of new fans as as if you're actually paying attention to your business you have to determine well did i actually get new fans did they come from that place and how much sure. are they, how much are they worth to me if they showed up at a show about a teacher maybe i'm fine with spotify paying me nothing because i made these fans so there's a lot of math there that makes it a little more complicated but um so they make you they make you a millionaire in exposure which can necessarily be transferred to real world money yeah, and and or it means you have to monetize that. So they might make me a million fans, but if I don't have merch or run out there and tour or do whatever sure. I need to do to convert that into income for me, that might not matter to me. You know, I don't know. Well, I since you're talking about getting on the road and kind of working on new stuff, um, I, a little bird called Gavin Castan has told me that you're you're kind of working on some new stuff now. Uh, can you can you shed any light on that? I think you actually had Casey over at your house pretty recently to kind of work on some stuff. Yeah, Casey came down. Um, I I built. I spent the last year building my own recording studio in my backyard. So I've got the studio where I started um, working on all these projects. Um, 
some of which are little. I have a couple little EPs that I'll probably drop in the next month or two. And then I've got this hopefully full length that I will be dropping on this tour that we're going to do in November. And case, nice. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't know if this has been mentioned anywhere, but I'm opening the shows on that tour. The first show of each city are acoustic nights. I'm going to play my own set before that solo. Oh. And maybe if I'm lucky... No, that, is, that has uh, not yeah. been put out there at all. Hey, what is up? Sorry for that air horn there. That was uh, Gavin's request, but... Gavin just let us know that uh, he will not be opening for the acoustic show on night one, but he will be opening for the Deer Hunter on night two of the Facio et Satio tour. Please don't kill me because of my pronunciation. But anyway, let's get right back into the show. Yeah, I think that's not announced yet, but I think you're okay to say it. Casey said it was fine. It's not redacted. Or management said it was fine. What's it? Yeah, no, I don't think you need to redact it. I think it's fine. Um, and I, so I've been preparing for that as well as getting ready for our sets. I think that, um, and so I also have to finish this album by then. And Casey, uh, Casey's probably three times as busy as I am. And he made time to come down here from Port Angeles. It's like a four or five hour drive and tracked guitars for two days straight with me, just, just relentlessly and incredibly. And so my record suddenly sounds a lot, a lot better. And I'm, I'm super excited about it. I was editing stuff he did just this morning and I'll edit it again all day today and tomorrow. And, um, um, he just laid down all these incredible ideas and these wonderful, it's, it's just really nice when you've been working on a record for a while to get an outside objective perspective to come in and, and add, some color to it that you may not have been able to do yourself and so he was just here i'm intending to release that record in time for that tour if i don't then i've been wasting a lot of time um finishing it and prep my own um, self for that solo performance and i'm hoping that some of the members of the deer hunter will jump up and jump on a song or two with me but that should be a really fun tour for me to get to do double duty again like that i hadn't done that since our Isley tour um that sounds like it's going to be exhausting yeah it could be but oh and we're also doing kind of the like the podcast chat in between i think we're going to do it in between the sets i'm not sure but um i do think it'll be exhausting we're already kind of starting preparations now um working on our voices and exercising and stuff you got to kind of get your body physically ready for that kind of work ahead of time so we've started that and um i think it'll be exhausting but i just I I love playing my music, you know, like anybody would. I just it's it's wonderful opportunity for me to play for a bunch of new listeners, and um, I have all these new songs that I would like to try out and um, experiment with. And I got this wonderful, you know what? Actually, this relates to. I think somebody asked on that Facebook group. They asked with Casey having made all these guitars from other members of the band. Do I ever get jealous? Mm-hmm. And he hadn't. And I was gonna say. Um, amazingly, the last time I was up there just a couple weeks ago, maybe even, maybe even just two weeks ago, I was up there working on stuff with Casey and we, on the way home, found this CP70 mini, like, it's kind of a portable baby grand and Casey, um, (laughs) wonderfully loaned me the money to be able to buy it so that I can use it on this tour. So um, So he has, in a way, given me this instrument that's just kind of a dream for me it's not technically a cave and canary thing and he didn't technically build it but it's through his um love and friendship that i have it so i feel like that counts Mm -hmm. and um and it's 
probably sexier than gorgeous uh, some of those other guitars that those hacks in the band have. Hey, you, you, gotta, that you gotta make it sexy. Speaking of <laughs> hacks, how would you uh, rate the? How would you rank the band members? <laughs> well, are we ranking? It, we gotta rank them by what? There's like. Well, let's let's break down the question real quick for people who aren't in the Facebook group. So, uh, Gavin was pretty excited about answering question of ranking the band members from best <laughs> from to worst. Craig, so I, I'm gonna put his feet to the fire and make Bilbig, him do it. I think his name is Billbitch. Can I can I give you options? You tell me rank by these things. I think either by height. By diet, <laughs> by emotional maturity, by attire, by leg strength, by the, their their skill at the kazoo. You I know. think ver- I think by vertical leap. By what is it? Vertical by leap. Vertical leap. How does that sound? See, I think that that's a great way to do it. I think that's good. Let me let me. Um, I can do that for you. Hold on. I'm just gonna write this little note to myself so I can organize these correctly. <laughs> I. I I don't want to leave anybody out. I'm going to, because this is by Vertical Leap, because you chose that, I'm going to have to include Topo. He's our sound guy in this um, ranking. So it's not, I'm breaking the rule a little bit. It's not strictly no, band Adam members. No, Adam in, out of the Texan. No, not the Texan. Just... <laughs> it... well, while, while he's typing it up, I think as far as Vertical Jump goes, it'd probably go Rue, Steve, than myself. As far For as, you uh, guys? Our, our rank. I, yeah. Aren't you the tallest though, Hunter? I, I'm assuming. Yeah, you're the I'm, a, I'm already higher than most people by default, so that might hurt you. I don't though. really need I, to jump. I, I can't jump. It's stri- it's strictly jump height. Okay, I've got this. So here we go. Number one is easy because it's Topo. He has um, the most amazing legs of anybody I've ever met, and he's able to <laughs> jump any height requested of him. So he's number one. Um, number two, I would have to say is Rob because he's the most athletic of us. He actually plays soccer and exercises regularly. And he's, I, I'm assuming there, we haven't had a, a jump competition for at least a year, but he is probably the highest. And then after that, I'm going to say me. Um, and then after that, I'm going to say <sighs> little Nick, Casey, big Nick, Max. You don't think Max can do the high Max is just not a jumper, huh? Yeah, I feel like Max would just not want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Max would probably say, like, he would just say, he, he would just say his leg is doing something weird that day or something. No disrespect to Max at all, but this is the ranking out. He's got do. the vertical leap when he's walking away from the challenge. So, <laughs> that. yeah, he's got the horizontal leap, but not the vertical. Yeah, so that's it. That's it. Fascinating question. Yeah, there was there was a lot of questions that we that we got that we unfortunately didn't have time to answer just because a lot of a lot of these things are really interesting. I'd love to d- delve into them more. So if you're interested at any point, we we'd love to have you back. Ask you some of these questions about uh, you know film, literature, stuff that people are really interested in hearing your perspective on. I'm to- dude. I'm gonna go and do this Craigslist thing for about 15 minutes, and I'm back. <laughs> I could jump right back on with you guys if you want. Oh. Whatever you guys want to do, I th- I think for the rest of the day I could be fairly free, so it didn't wouldn't have to be right away. But I'm just saying, I think that's my only main thing, and then you guys are just pretty much guaranteeing my album doesn't get done, so I'm fine <laughs> with that. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely our fault. So everyone, grab your pitchforks. <laughs> well, just to to kind of put an end to it in case we can't get you back on. Um, obviously, we all know that Act Six is going to be a wrap. I mean, Casey says it's going to be a movie. It's misdirection. I mean, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's going to definitely be a wrap. And I mean, you're here on our show. You kind of, you owe us to, to give us a sample of this. So I, I would love to hear your, your sampling of act six and how that rap's going to go. Well, 
I would love for you to just play the track from Axis that I released multiple times in the message board and was ignored. <laughs> he, really, he really wants people to. Yeah, we, we can definitely <laughs> drop it in. Uh, I'll put it. I'll put it in right here. Wild chickens get hobbled Keep your boy clear of the Facebook drama If you want science, you can check Obama You wanna get weird, you should check your mama You filling up space like an Oxford comma I remain pop while you remain Forrest Gump Your boy Donnie Trump is the ultimate fist bump There, there you go <laughs> um, because <Welcome> back. <laughs> I can't, I can't find the I. But to be like, I, I would actually be happy to recite it to you. But I can't find the lyric sheet for it. I only find all these other raps I did for Act, act Five that um, that wouldn't be relevant to Act Six. So I think if you use that, you're best off. If I could find the lyric mm-hmm. sheet, I would just recite. It's probably even uh, more disturbing if I said it in a normal tone. Well, you, you heard it here, folks. Uh, Act six uh, wasn't that far away. It's right there in Dear Apparition podcast episode. What are we on now? Three? Yeah, episode like three, four. Te- or technically oh, four? four. We did an episode zero. Yeah, yeah, that should count. So anyway, you've heard Act six here. It's exclusive to this place. So uh, immortalize us in the history books. We've got Act six uh, in the bag. Is there anything yeah. you guys want to touch on before we let him go? Um, we do have a question. I guess it's going to start becoming a ritual. Uh, what is your favorite flower or plant? I'm sorry. Or plants. My favorite plant? Yeah. It's probably a tomato plant of some species because they're the most efficient um, spatially and resource-wise. And so I have several tomato plants in my backyard. That's the only thing I've ever been able to really keep alive. And <laughs> they produce a ton of fruit. The fruits of your labor. I mean, that's it's a very, very uh, <laughs> useful plant. So, hey, <laughs> yeah. I, I love it. Ra- Ra- Rachel Valera loves to ask about plants, so it's almost become a staple at this point. We just we she better respect plants. my answer. Then I know it's not it's not cute, it's not sens- sensual, but it's um. Well, I mean, Hunter just said flowers, so. But he meant plant. Yeah, no, no, I'm saying Hunter. <laughs> like last on last episode, when we have a yeah, neck, he just I, said flower. My favorite plant is a flower, and everyone seems to think that's that's a huge problem. I love that's flowers. Useless. I'm, I'm that's with useless answer. for humanity. I'm only interested in our survival <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> At least he didn't say anything disturbing, like a poppy plant or something, because then we'd have to be like, oh, well, why, why is he like that so much? So I just assume Nick already said that. I think I think if you Hunter, your response to my dig at flowers and survival should just be that they're critical to bees and that bees are critical to survival. There's an easy out uh, for you here. Yeah, let's let's edit this in. Uh, <laughs> I, I personally think that flowers are the most important plant because of bees. All right, I'm going to take down episode one and put the back up. Well, Gavin, uh, before, before we let you go, we, we'd love to have you back on a little bit if we can make that uh, time constraint work out. But just in case we can't, um, do you want to you plug what you're doing? Plug your, your website, uh, anything you, you want the people to know or... I just would love for people like yourselves that are making the effort to come to these shows. I we we are probably as bummed as everyone else that we can't do every town like this, but we're we're going to make them very special, and we're very excited about this tour. And I'm stoked to release my new record on the tour and premiere a lot of stuff on this tour. That's going to be very exciting for Deer Hunter fans. So I think the focus right now is that tour is in November. If you haven't somehow got your tickets already. Um, 
do it. And if you can't make it work, totally understand. We'll do our best to communicate what happened on that tour. And I'm sure people like yourselves will document it. But um, you might want to think about just not going on with your life after that fact, because it's going to be special. Yeah, I think my whole life has culminated to, to this <laughs> tour. So <laughs> we gotta, we, yeah, you got to bring your A game. Otherwise, my life will be for naught. Yeah, I think you, you might want to follow that statement up with a shout out to that 800 number you can call if you're feeling depressed or you want to kill yourself because I did just promote suicide on your podcast. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, in, insert number here. No, definitely get to these shows. It's going to be awesome. They're doing a really special thing. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be there in Chicago. Rue and Steve. Rue's coming all the way from the UK just to meet you guys. He's crashing in my studio. So we're, we're looking forward to... You guys better introduce yourselves. Oh, I we want to will. put a face to some yeah, of these names. We got to gotta talk and see if we can link up afterwards or something. Cool. Yeah, just know that uh, this and uh, this isn't a cop out. We we are going to be protecting our voices like crazy on this tour because of how much singing and talking we're going to be doing. So if we do get sure. to meet up and chat, it will be us whispering or just watching you while you mm. say. Stuff I'm a vocalist. I got it. So we've only got a couple months to learn sign language. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, we could write stuff <laughs> down. We could write stuff down. We could just hug for a long I'll period give you of time. A <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but our talking communicate with pheromones like like animals. Oh yeah, I'm into that. All, All right, right. Well, last thing uh, before we plug our stuff, um, you, you got to tell us about what the deer hunter is working on now. I mean, like I said, we have you trapped here, so go ahead and give us <laughs> what you got. <laughs> I can tell you, we're working very hard. It is going to be. Um, it's it has music. There's music. There's um, music on it. God, I, I want yeah, a refund yeah, already. We didn't give that up. We haven't given that up. Um, after Act Six, uh, I, I can't express the rap percentage content yet because that hasn't been determined. Um, somewhere what between ninety five and one hundred? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I want to make room for prog music, and so there's that five percent that's still going to keep you guys on board. <laughs> um, I'm, th- I'm thinking something like Crossroads, where instead of a guitar battle, it's just like a rap battle and yeah, yeah. like there's ornate lots of landscape, that. yeah. Yeah, there's lots of that. No, I, I think I think mainly the band is doing what it always does in a way. We're just going to do whatever we want, and we're going to hope that you guys support us doing it and that creativity is rewarded. And so far, it just always has been, so we have no reason to believe we can't keep pushing out in crazy directions. So that's what we're doing. Um, but that's what we're doing. This I think this tour will shed a lot of light on things for people. So I think that's another reason to show up, is if you want to know what the Deer Hunter's been up to, I would get to these shows. Well, if you want to drop a nugget of wisdom, we'll censor out everything past this point. So just drop drop spoilers, and no one will ever hear it. <laughs> <laughs> just for you three? Is that what this really is? Yeah, absolutely. That's the only reason we're doing this. <laughs> this whole thing's motivated by self-interest. Don't worry. We don't care about it. <laughs> That's insane. I, I just assume Big Nick already dropped whatever nuggets there are. Big Nick spilled the big beans. He probably did. No, he, um, did, he didn't do yeah, anything. I don't know. I don't know. I yeah. I can't. I can't. I don't want. I want to get paid right. in the we're, future. We're legit going to censor out. We're legit going to censor out all yeah. of this. So Casey's going to think that you spilled the beans. Oh yeah, you should just beep everything I'm saying. Well, we're going to just. Uh, yeah. No, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think it. I think of anything. No, I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep giving you guys. <laughs> That's fine. I'm just. I'm just, I'm just bullshit. But That's I'll just fine. keep doing that thing where I'm like. Well, there's going to be more content than ever, or you guys are going to see, like, it's still vague and not satisfying, so there's no Oh, yeah, give the, po- give the politician answer all the way. Yeah, Trust it's me. just you gotta, a you politician the, answer. The You're totally right. It's just a politician <laughs> answer. No, I just, I, actually, it would, be, it would be super disappointing if you if you spoiled it, so thank you for keeping it enigmatic for us. That's cool. If you want no, like, no spoiler music, then my music, there's just no secrets. I'll be like, yeah, I'm doing this, and whatever, like, I'll give away the punchline immediately. <laughs> 
<laughs> the deer hunter, it's so central to our brand that we that we surprise you like that and that we um, get to incubate these ideas until they really have percolated into something amazing. I think um, that's kind of what you pay for. So mm. I think that's what you got to deal with. If you guys want to call me on a secure line and sign an NDA, I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like you're just going to tell us something absurd and we're going to lord that knowledge and it turns out to be true. So. Yeah, I'm more of a disinformation type person, but I don't, I feel like that's more my brand than the deer hunter. So I, I, I can't do too much of that. I don't want to. Hey, you are, you are the blazist himself. So yeah, I don't expect I'm, anything different. It's kind of my job. He's the reason so. we have the blazing channel on here. So yeah, thank yeah, you for we, doing that. I appreciate that. Well, thanks for right, coming well, on. Uh, like I said, we, yeah, we had a great time having you on. We'd love to have you on another time to kind of answer some of these other questions. We're, yeah. we're always here to, to have you on again. So. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. no problem, man. We'll talk great to you Great to soon. meet you. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. So just the time to plug our yes, shit. let's plug uh, our stuff. <laughs> this is what the people are here for. Uh, I'm Steve. You can find me on Instagram at Drakontas underscore D-R-A-K-O-N-T-A-S underscore. You could follow the network at Area 22 Productions. Go to the group at The Meaning Of and All Things Regarding the Deer Hunter. Uh, you could hear me do screamy stuff with my band Elisions, E-L-I-S-I-O-N-S, or my solo project, Drakontas. And uh, that's all I want to promote. You guys? So... As always, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram. I'm Rue Nottage, R-E-U-N-O-T-T-A-G-E. Always happy to chat with you guys. I'm also a mod on the Facebook page, so always happy to chat there as well. Uh, well, my name is Hunter. Um, you uh, you can find me on Instagram at Kim Kardashian. Awesome. Um, yeah, um, just you can find me on Facebook at Hunter Workman. Uh, just thanks for listening to what we're doing. We got an Act 2 episode coming up, breaking down all of that. Uh, we're currently working on maybe bringing in some um, interviews with other artists, you know, kind of expand our horizons a little bit. So, I mean, if you like what we're doing here and want to keep up with it, um, give us your feedback, let us know what you want to hear and we're having fun with it. So we'll, we'll keep doing it. And please give the Facebook page a like for Dear Apparition Podcast. If you guys have anything you want us to talk about or any suggestions or anything, our inboxes are open and that's honestly the best way to stay up to date with what's going on with the newest episodes and everything. So yes, we'll we'll talk for likes. I feel like I'm panhandling at this point. Th thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, I'm Steve. That's Hunter. Say hi, Hunter. Hi, Hunter. And then here's our our resident uh, UK boy, Rue. How you doing, Rue? I'm doing aight, aight. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great rest of your day or night or whenever you're listening to this.